0: Hello. Hello. Who is this? You
1: tell me your name, I'll tell you mine.
0: <laughs> I don't think so.
1: What's that noise? My keyboard. You're typing?
0: Well, I'm getting ready to listen to a podcast.
1: Do you like podcasts about scary movies? Uh-huh. What's your favorite podcast about scary movies?
0: Um, now playing. You know, the one hosted by Stuart Arnie and Marjorie who watch and review all movies in a series.
1: Is that the one that's now reviewing the entire Scream movie series?
0: Yeah, the ghost Face killer.
1: I haven't seen that movie.
0: The podcast has spoilers and harsh language, so you should watch the movie before you listen.
2: Okay. You never told me your name.
0: Why do you want to know my name?
2: Because I want to know who I'm looking at.
1: Today, we're discussing Scream 2, starring Nev Campbell, David Arquette, Courtney Cox, Sarah Michelle Geller, Jamie Kennedy, Jerry O'Connell, Jada Pinkett, and Liev Schreiber, directed by Wes Craven. I'm Arnie, co host of Now Playing, Stuart in LA,
0: and I'm Marjorie.
1: And we're back discussing the rushed sequel to scream coming out one
3: year later in true horror movie fashion i guess they felt like marketability and chasing after the dollar were also part of the rules (laughs) aren't they i'm pretty sure they are i'm definitely sure they are and you know who can blame them scream was a huge success a sequel would have been inevitable the only question that remains is did they have enough time to deliver the goods well one thing they did was bring back the entire creative team
1: All of our survivors from Scream 1 are here as far as the cast, and Wes is back behind the camera, and Kevin Williamson penned the script, even though he'd become a hot commodity and was working on Dawson's Creek, killing Miss Tingle, and God only knows how many other things.
0: Isn't it teaching Miss Tingle?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Miss MPAA. Just saying. (laughs) I did see this initially in theaters, but didn't remember a lot coming into this watching honestly i hadn't seen any of these scream films since i think oh two so
3: every scream movie i saw on video and this one i know i saw it but I can't recall the, even the experience of watching it. I, and, and very few plot points came back even as watching it. It was almost like watching it for the first time, but every now and then I would have a sense memory, like a, a phantom limb would kick, and I'd be like, oh, yes, that's going to happen. But for the most part, yeah, just less of an impression here than the original Scream. Interestingly, I couldn't remember necessarily who the second killer was watching this. I agree. I didn't remember that there were two killers. I only remembered one.
0: I have never seen this movie before watching it for this podcast.
3: Which is why
1: you're our newbie.
0: Yes, I am the newbie because I don't really remember the extent of my Scream 2 knowledge of Scary Movie too.
3: So since none of us can really remember what this is about, Arnie, help me out. How about a plot summary? It's two
1: years after the string of Woodsboro murders depicted in Scream 1, and the film Stab is coming out in theaters, which is a horror film based on Gail Weather's book telling of the events we saw in the first Scream, with such casting choices as Tori Spelling in Nev Campbell's role of Sydney, Luke Wilson as Billy, and Heather Graham taking the Drew Barrymore role of Early Kill. And our film, Scream 2, starts with Windsor College students Phil and Maureen, played by Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett Smith, respectively, getting free tickets to the premiere of Stab, where they go despite Maureen not liking scary movies. On a trip to the restroom, Phil hears some weird childlike noises in the next stall, and is stabbed through the stall wall by a new killer wearing the Ghostface outfit. Donning Phil's bomber jacket, Ghostface goes into the theater and sits next to Maureen, and as Heather Graham is killed on screen... Ghostface kills Marine in the theater in front of hundreds of bloodthirsty moviegoers who think the killing is simply enthusiastic fans role-playing. We then go to Phil and Marine's Windsor College and see that Woodsboro survivors Sidney Prescott and Randy Meeks have both moved far away from Woodsboro and are attending Windsor. Randy is, of course, an aspiring film student discussing the merits of sequels in his film class with Sarah Michelle Gellar's Cece and Timothy Olyphant as Mickey, a slightly cooler film geek than Randy. And Sydney, less intuitively, is studying acting and starring in a college production telling the Greek myth of Cassandra. Sydney seems well-adjusted, having gotten caller ID, and despite getting prank phone calls due to Stab's popularity, she's living her life head-up, humoring her roommate Hallie by pledging a sorority and dating her hunky new boyfriend Derek, played by bland vanilla Jerry O'Connell. When news of Philomarine's death spreads, Dewey flies from Woodsboro to check on Sid, and his former flame reporter Gail Weathers, hot from her book becoming a movie, swoops in for some more exploitation journalism. In tow with Gail is Cotton Weary, whose name is cleared and has been released from death row, but is having a hard time adjusting to post-prison life unable to find work, and has been promised by Gale a big payday for an on-air reunion with Sidney, his former accuser. The body count continues to grow, as do references to film horror conventions, and Randy gives us the rule for horror sequels before he himself is off. And the film sort of follows the plot of the original. Sydney is attacked in a dorm room before her boyfriend shows up and scares off Ghostface. Sydney thinks Derek might be the killer or one of the killers. And to prove his love to Sydney, he sings, I think I love you in the cafeteria before giving Sydney his Greek letters, a no-no in his fraternity. Cece is killed while alone in a sorority house, and once again, everyone is a suspect. Dewey and Gail begin to reunite, and they team up to search for the murderer, and realize that the victims are all named after victims in the Woodsboro murders. Sidney's mother was Maureen Prescott, Phil Stevens matches Stephen Orth, Drew Barrymore's tied-up, forgettable boyfriend in the first scream, and Cece, short for Casey Cooper, sharing a first name with Drew Barrymore's Casey Becker. But as soon as that pattern is realized, the killers abandon it, killing Randy in broad daylight and tormenting Sydney online. The police try to take Sydney into protective custody, but Ghostface attacks the parked car, killing both cops and Hallie. Meanwhile, back on campus, Derek is kidnapped by his frat brothers, tied up and tortured with cold beer poured down his pants for giving his letters necklace to Sydney. And in the theater building, Gail and Dewey are attacked by Ghostface. Dewey is stabbed in the back again. Sydney finds Derek, now alone, tied up on stage, and the killer reveals himself to be Mickey. Shooting and killing Derek, Mickey reveals his partner is Mrs. Loomis, who had been pretending to be local newspaper reporter Debbie Salt, played by Roseanne's Laurie Metcalf. Mrs. Loomis, upset that Sydney killed her son Billy in the first movie, had orchestrated all of this to get revenge for her son. Mrs. Loomis shoots Gail, but before she can kill Sidney, they're interrupted by Cotton Weary. Cotton holds both Loomis and Sidney at gunpoint, and when Sidney agrees to join him on Diane Sawyer, Cotton shoots Mrs. Loomis. And in the end, we see Dewey lived again, Gale this time choosing to go with Dewey to the hospital instead of report on the carnage, and Sydney sends reporters to talk to Cotton, giving her the privacy she wants while giving Cotton the fame he needs while credits roll. So a lot going on, a lot of characters. Every survivor from the first one, every teenage survivor anyway, returning and... A lot of new faces. But why don't we start like we did with the last one, starting with our little prologue. Because of the huge success that was Drew Barrymore's offing in the first Scream, they felt like all the rest of the Screams have to start with a big celebrity death. And here, instead of Drew Barrymore, we get Jada Pinkett and Omar Epps.
3: (laughs) What? What are you saying about Jada Pinkett? Smith. That she's not cool. <laughs> she's not famous. She's not Drew Barrymore. Okay, she is not Drew Barrymore. I'll give you that right off the bat. Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett. Is it wrong that I thought it was Tay Diggs? <laughs> he's about yes. he's about a foot shorter, but yeah. Here's the thing. Williamson is taking a moment to again assert his Postmodern voice about horror films, and this time he wants to take on the tack that minorities never live in slasher movies. And in doing so, they bring in two of what would have been, at the time, some of the biggest stars of the upcoming black film movement. You know, Omar Epps had starred in Juice and Jada Pinkett had been a minister to society. These were cult hits. They'd grow some money. They were definitely stars on the rise. Perhaps maybe they were cast thinking they were the next Sydney Poitier and Cicely Tyson. Clearly that didn't translate, but they seemed <laughs> to fit the roles of being able to speak about black actors in Hollywood movies and Hollywood slasher films. It, it it works well enough.
0: I thought these two were very stereotypical of white people's perceptions of black people in a movie, which maybe that was the point. However, I mean, come on. Didn't you think it was stereotypical, guys? I don't know that they were stereotypical because by the same
1: token, you had Jada Pinkett discussing the role of African-Americans in cinema. Absolutely. It's not like it was the apollo there it wasn't an all-black audience screaming at it wasn't
0: however they were stereotypical i mean the shouting at the screen the black girl being scared that kind of thing
3: To me, I felt like they're kind of generic. If anything, they didn't feel stereotypical. They felt like mouthpieces. They felt like, hi, we are black people here to talk about black people in a slasher movie. I guess I wish I had spent a little more time with them as people. When Drew Barrymore appears on the screen with just a few exchanges over the phone, I got a real sense of who she was. Here, I didn't get the sense that these were characters so much as commentators.
0: And this whole scene felt like it was just tacked on like an afterthought, though.
1: My problem was with the scene,
0: it didn't
1: pull me into the movie at all. With Scream, I'm sitting there, you know, I heard a Clive Barker commentary once about stupid Americans and how nothing can happen during like the first 10 minutes of the film because we're all too busy crunching on our popcorn.
0: He's right. So
1: when I think of the start of a movie now, Clive Barker has forever changed my perception that during the beginning of a film, we're all more interested in our popcorn than the screen. And with Scream and Drew Barrymore and the calls and the everything, I was sucked into that movie. And if you're sitting there and you're crunching on your popcorn, you're going to forget about your popcorn. And you're going to be into this. Here... I wasn't scared. It was just a little bit too jokey when you had a movie theater with Ghostface on a string going from the roof of the theater and all these people. At first, I'm like, there's no theater like that. They're like, oh, yes, there is. But it's usually at the Star Wars opening with people doing the knife fights and everything.
3: I'm okay with that. I think this opening does a lot that's helpful for the story, for the narrative. It tells us about Gale and that her book's published. It catches us up to speed. It allows Williamson to talk about a new angle on slasher films. But I agree with you. It is in no way scary. And I think I figured it out. Scream, the original movie, took into consideration the entire history of slasher movies. It primarily focused on Halloween, but it went all the way back to the murder mysteries, and it really felt knowledgeable and expansive. Scream 2 feels feels like it's running a race with exactly one movie, Scream, and that everything that they're doing feels like, do you like it as much as last time? Do you like it as much (laughs) as last time? Do you like it as much as last time? Well, no, I don't actually. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like it was really clever to re-show us the opening of the original movie on a movie screen and have, in a very postmodern way, people watching it and then having their own horror experience. In the movie theater, clever, yes, conceptually great. But it's hard to say why, but maybe it's I'm not connecting to the characters, maybe it's because it's not as well staged, or maybe it's just too much navel-gazing. Maybe I'm just reminded too much of New Nightmare when we have a talk show audience full of people in Freddy masks. I don't know, but I can not say this. I felt the opening of Scream was riveting. I felt the opening of Scream 2 was playing catch-up and not proving the point that sequels can be better than their originals.
1: I know. I mean... Isn't that the true rule of sequels? We'll get to Randy's rule of sequels later, but isn't the rule of a sequel not quite as good?
3: (laughs) There's a dilution effect, yes. Maybe it's all intentional then. Maybe they wanted it to not be as good. and They've succeeded. It's not as good. I thought some of the details here were funny. I thought it was funny to have Heather Graham playing Drew Barrymore. I thought it was funny that they had a gratuitous TNA shot with her getting in a shower for no reason when we know that never happened in the original. Again, clever, enjoyable, goofy, funny, sure. But scary? Never. It was never scary. I think another part of the problem is there were too many people. It became a little bit
1: chaotic. And... The fact that you have Jada being killed in front of all of the audience and things. Stuart, you and I had a joke back in high school. The best place to commit a murder would be black Friday at a mall because the crowds would be such that you could get away with it. It was kind of playing off that. That was funny when I was 14. It it doesn't play right here that people would just, you know, the real murder would be going on and this guy could just escape like that. It just was too silly.
0: Maybe V from Vendetta ripped this off and it, was an homage to Scream 2 when the V-masks are handed out at the television station and there's just huge boxes of them. And maybe it was the Ghostface Killer who gave everyone the costumes in the movie theater so he could get away with killing these two random people that have no part in this sordid, slutty tale.
1: Well, it is implied later on that the Ghostface Killer, who, again, will do like we did the last time, we know who they are. Mrs. Loomis and Mickey the film student, somehow got Phil and Maureen free passes to the screening. They were set up. And perhaps another part of the problem is, who the fuck are Phil and Maureen?
3: Yeah, but who it was Drew and her boyfriend? I mean, they weren't really connected to the world of Sydney and her friends anymore than these guys are. But I know what you mean. They don't do any good job of making us feel like these two characters fit in with the rest of the story.
1: Here's the thing. You say... Drew and her boyfriend, Steve, you want to know how forgettable Steve was is when they say in this movie, they're going through and killing the people in the same order. I'm like, okay, the first person was Sydney's mother and the second person
3: was Drew. I forgot they killed Steve in the middle. Steve was was a prop. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, they don't relish the kill. That's how you know it's not important. The camera doesn't even linger when he got gutted. And here, our Steve, our new Steve, is Omar in the bathroom getting a knife in the head. And what was he hearing? I've always wondered that. What did he
1: think it was hearing? Because it sounded like a little kid's voice, like, mommy? And I'd never know. Now I'm kind of thinking it was like, what did you do with the baby, Agnes, now that I've seen the original Black Christmas?
3: That's exactly what I was thinking. It felt a little Black Christmas to me. I have no idea what that reference was. If anybody does know, please post it in our forums because I'd love to know there was an end joke I didn't get.
0: Do you guys often listen to what other people do in the urinal and bathroom?
1: I try not to listen. More importantly, I try not to smell. Or put my flesh against
3: stall doors because who knows what's been in them. I'm not saying he deserves to die, but he should have known something bad was going to come as a result of that.
1: He may not deserve to die, but perhaps he deserves a flesh-eating bacteria. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, she certainly should not kiss him on the cheek after that.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah. It was kind of a grisly kill, though. I mean, it's something about getting speared in the ear. I don't know. It's it got me a little, but... I don't know. Getting poked in the head when you're kneeling against the stall wall. Is there a glory hole reference going on here? Or? Well, you know, now you're getting into Scary Movie 2, which <laughs> parodied the thing with another phallic object. One of the things about the opening kill that is kind of frustrating is weren't these two planning to go to another movie like what would the killer have done if they had gone to see the sandra bullock bullshit like would would the opening really have been you know while you were sleeping and her being pushed in front of a train i mean i don't know
0: that would have been better than watching while you were sleeping
3: (laughs) admittedly i don't know it just seems to me that What are the chances that these two would be dating on this night, going to this movie with these names that just happen to be connected to the names of the others? It's just a whole lot to ask for. And quite frankly, I'm disappointed in Williamson. It's just not up to his standard. He was so smart in the last one. And here I feel like the writing is loose and really a weakness of the sequel.
1: Well, let's face it. I mean, Steve and Maureen are not the most uncommon of names. Maybe they invited 20 of them. <laughs> You're right. I would have. OK, that's kind of all right. Sh- and we just happen to focus on the two that did get killed.
3: Right. That had something to say about slasher movies. <laughs>
1: So, yeah, I got to say, when this all happened, my big question was, how are these people related? I mean, we instantly found out with Drew, she was their friend, we go to the high school and everything. But now we get our, you know, Scream 2 logo, and then we are reintroduced to Sydney, and she's now in college. One year passed for us, two years passed for her, and she's doing surprisingly well. I was again surprised to see kind of happy Nev at the beginning of this. I keep forgetting Nev ever is happy.
3: I don't feel she's too happy in this movie. I definitely got more of that in the original. Here, the Feruza-Balk syndrome, as you've described it, is starting to really set in. The jello mold is firm and, and <laughs> jiggly. Uh, she's just not as perky as she was in the original. And why should she be? I mean, she's being prank phone-called. She's had to live through the death of her mother and now death of her friends and the betrayal of her boyfriend. It's correct to produce a character that is more brittle, but I can't say it, it makes us care more. Or it's more fun to watch
0: all she does is cry in this movie <laughs> seriously, and that's all she does stands there and looks like almost it looks like she's bleeding I guess I don't think she has any acting skills. I'm sorry if there's any Nev Campbell fans out there
1: or anywhere
0: yeah i I know that most of the males probably like her because she kissed a girl in some movie
1: wild things okay, okay. froze frame it love it move on
3: okay. <laughs> Hey, well, at least she's studying acting here. I mean, she at least <laughs> recognizes the deficiency. I, you know, True. I, I hope that her teacher is not giving her high marks. But, but she's the lead in Cassandra. Yes. Well, metaphorically, that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> from a directing standpoint, I would put her as the second tree on the right. <laughs> Here's my
0: problem with this whole subplot of her major. She was attacked by a serial killer two years ago. There was a book written about it. Her mom was a whore. And then there's a movie about this. All the terror in her life was about her mother being a whore. She takes great pains to hide from the media. But she's going to be an actress? <laughs> Does not make sense.
1: I have to agree. That doesn't make sense. And I didn't even get it. It's like an hour later when she's talking to David Warner. We keep coming back to David Warner. I think... David Warner is the under-recognized Kevin Bacon of the now-playing movie series. <laughs> I don't know who he is. Exactly. But yet he's been in so much. Is he like Keith
0: David. He's in but Tron.
1: Different. He was in Tron and as two different characters in Star Trek 5 and 6. And here he is in Scream 2. But it was during that scene that I'm like, oh, she's an actress. I didn't know what she was studying. I think it, was, it might have been dropped. But it just doesn't make sense. Randy studying film makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Sydney studying acting...
3: I, she seemed more pre-law. Or coffee shop. I could see her being a writer, a creative writer, or, you know, much more angsty. The way it's written is she's working through her own personal demons by playing a, a character. And maybe that works if you get the right part. But I don't know. I agree with you. It doesn't really work for me that she she doesn't remind me of any acting major I ever knew. And then I mentioned Randy Really happy to see him back.
1: He was a good bit of energy in the first one. It's, again, kind of that stretch. I guess it's a conceit that you have to give every story ever where the this- kids go from high school into college that they both went to school far away from Woodsboro, but yet not dating. They weren't together. They just so happened to go to the same school that it's
3: not even a car's drive away. They say Dewey had to fly there,
1: so it's not even like the closest state school.
3: I liked Randy in the last one pretty much. I thought he was a useful character in allowing Williamson to really be postmodern and talk about the slasher genre overtly. Here, I think it's interesting that they make him the person that's anti sequel. Set up right from the get go in his film class. He's the one saying it's a bad idea, and of course, why wouldn't he? Because being in a <laughs> sequel to these things, it would it means he's probably going to be the one killed, and indeed, that's what happens. And not surprisingly, the one advocating for sequels is the real killer, Mickey. True, I didn't even
1: notice that that was the case, but once you said he's arguing against sequels, I'm like, yeah, because he's not going to live
3: through it. Mm-hmm. And Mickey is making this i mean that's his only motive really is that he wants to do what Stu and billy did so
1: even though these two went off to college together then of course everybody else from woodsboro has to show up in this town as well
0: of course <laughs> yeah i don't get that the thing you want to do when you first go to college is get away from everyone you know perhaps
1: if you got gone off to the big city you might be a little embarrassed to have deputy fife yeah barney fife dewey
0: did you guys notice that every time that Dewey appeared on screen and kind of, like, limped around that they played, like, a vaguely Western theme in the score? Uh-uh. Yeah, it was very subtle, but it was kind of that I can't do it, Arnie. I Western actually thing. have a
1: funny story about this. Is I like that little scene, especially the music they play when Dewey and Gale are together in Scream 2. And, like, years later after watching this, I was watching Broken Arrow on, like, USA and it's the same music, and it turned out in my research. They just took some music from Broken Arrow and made it the Dewey theme for this. Mm. So all it's- that da, da 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 is all straight out of Broken Arrow. Mm.
0: Yeah, it was all very Western and very funny because he says he's you know he thinks he's a big bad cop, but
1: it's funny that you noticed it had a totally different feel as it's yeah. different music by a different composer from a different movie yeah. used in screen
3: what's disappointing about that is this movie is so good about making callbacks to other horror movies. I wish if they were going to take some other score, they would have taken it from a horror movie. but that they, makes uh, sense. Live and learn. I, I didn't notice the score, but obviously I did notice Dewey was back and that it was a bit strained that they put him in here. I guess the thought was him returning and that the killer could have been from the original that he's a suspect now. but. Did anyone ever think him as a credible suspect? Could he actually have ever been in a satisfying storyline where he was the killer? It just wouldn't work, would it? No. I I wish they hadn't even tried. Uh, But, you know, I guess everyone's a suspect in Scream.
1: They specifically say everyone's a suspect. One thing I like about Dewey is... With his limp and everything, is it something affected? Randy even calls it out. You know, you were stabbed in the back, why are you limping? So, the, if that was his cover, if he was Kaiser Soze-ing it.
0: Never once suspected Dewey. I thought his lip was real. Dewey wouldn't hurt anybody.
3: I kind of agree, Marjorie. It, it's just preposterous to even go there. And I will say this. You know, I was pretty much on the fence about Dewey in the last movie. But here, I'm more won over. I do like him now. I do find there's a sweetness to him that he brings every time that he's on screen that really does work for this movie but the problem is this movie needs more scares and not more sweet so (laughs) on one hand i'm happy he's here and that they found a way to kind of shoehorn him in when the script really has no purpose for him but when the scares or the alleged scares start happening he's a little bit of a uh problem
1: i think you've hit on one of my problems with this movie though Stuart. is as we're going through our returning characters one thing i put in my notes is at any point do we think any of our returning characters could be the killer
0: none possibly
1: cotton, maybe Mm -hmm. cotton, but cotton's barely returning. I mean, we talked last time about how it was at best a cameo for Liev. And here it's like, we've come to like these characters from what they went through in part one. And I would have really loved it if Williamson and Craven had the balls to make Dewey and Randy the killer or something, you know, like they were both spurned. Randy never got with Sydney. Dewey was spurned by Gail. If the two of them had teamed up to do the murders, Or if it was Gale going for the book, if they had just gone, you think you like these characters, fuck you audience, I would have given it respect. But as it is, none of them are credible suspects, but yet the movie tries to make them suspects. And that leaves us just this whole cast of new
3: WB wannabes to pick and choose from. Agreed. And I don't think I ever thought it would have been someone from Woodsboro. It just wouldn't make sense. If they were going to kill Sydney. they would have done it a year ago or two years ago.
1: Yeah, because we got Gale back and... She's doing what she did before. It kind of seemed like a step backwards for the character. And so many beats of this movie just match beat for beat the last one. And including Sydney punching Gail again. And I was kind of rolling my eyes. I'm like, is that another rule of the sequel? Is that we're watching
3: the greatest hits from the first movie? Well, this is what I'm talking about. That this movie is perpetually trying to redo what was done the last time. If the thought was we're doing it better... I disagree. If the thought is that we're being clever and making it from the same cloth, it does have the same feel, but I don't have the same feeling about it. It's sort of a strange push and pull I'm having here. It does feel like a continuation of the world. Everyone did come back. Everyone is doing the same job they did before, but my feeling towards it is just not the same. It's it's a lack of direction. I really actually will put a lot of this on Craven just not being as good as he was last time.
1: Well, part of that could be that, you know, one of the things I cited in the last film that I liked is these characters felt like they had real relationships in the first one. You had a real brother-sister relationship between Dewey and his sister, and you really felt like these people were friends and who knew each other. You even mentioned Stuart, how Stu was that douchebag that you don't understand why your friends hang out with him. Here, it's like everybody's put together, but it feels like an ensemble cast that just hasn't gelled. We get Jerry O'Connell. The fat kid from Stand By Me, (laughs) all grown up. I know him more from my secret identity, that 80s TV show, than anything else.
3: He is just like the most vanilla, bland... I I agree. Jerry O'Connell isn't a particularly dynamic presence. I didn't remember him being in this movie. Exactly. What movies do you remember him being in? I remember him
1: being in The New Guy with DJ Qualls. He and his brother are two skater dorks. Other than that, I cannot remember Jerry O'Connell in anything, but he's been in a ton. Well, Jerry
3: Maguire, That that Stand By Me and Jerry Maguire are the only two things I could have named. That said, I mean, he is playing a frat brother, and I believe that. (laughs) He he does have that kind of party guy, not really deep. He doesn't seem really complicated. And on the surface, that's obviously what Sid would want, is just a average boyfriend after her creepy, I watch horror movies all the time and and make comparisons about our love to them. Uh, (laughs) why, Why wouldn't you go with a guy that just wants to have a kegger then we've got
1: mickey and i don't know i was glad to see randy back because you need somebody to keep telling us the rules right that's randy's purpose is to be williamson's mouthpiece i felt with mickey yeah one of them had to die because we had one film geek too many now i enjoyed their little sparring about you know ewok suck and all of that i got a thrill out of it it was kind of fun but we didn't need two film geeks
0: but mickey kind of disappears from the movie I had to really think when he popped out at the end, I'm like, wait, who the hell's that guy? Because he was just gone. I mean, he was a background character. Well, for that's because so he's
3: been busy killing people. Under I the guess mask. so. I think Mickey serves the same purpose that Billy did in the last one. You're looking for the parts of the time when he isn't the most obvious suspect. He's got crazy eyes, Timothy Oliphant. He's got Nicholson shining eyes. Like, you just look at him and you feel like something is loose in there, something is not right. I always suspected that he could be in on it, which. Led me to believe that he must not be because he's too obvious. He's the one that's advocating for sequels. And so if there is a sequel to the murders, then, of course, he would be the one making and steering and cheering on that sequel.
0: He does do evil very good. And that's one of the things he can do is that crazy kind of unsettling. And I've seen him in two other movies that were he wasn't the villain. And he was actually the best actor in all of them and carried the weight of the rest of the cast.
3: So I know him mostly as a TV actor at this point. Deadwood and the Elmore Leonard show that's on right now. Justified. I agree with you, Marjorie. I think that his lack of presence
1: made him not a very reasonable suspect. Same reason I didn't think Sarah Michelle Geller was it. Same reason I didn't think Porta de Rossi and the Noxzema girl had teamed up and were the killer.
0: I actually thought maybe they would have been the killers because they were new. They were instantly hateable. (laughs) And... They seem to be around for, like, the first quarter of the movie, and then all of a sudden they disappeared from sight. And I'm kind of like, okay, maybe they're jealous of Sydney and they want to kill her and get all the attention for themselves. And then they just kind of come and go and have absolutely no real substance, and I don't know why they're in the movie.
3: Those girls are always paired together, and since they know that we know that there were originally two killers, and that if this is a, a redo of that... Then there are probably two killers this time. They're hoping we make that jump. But come on. How unsatisfying would it be if it was the sorority girl killers? No, I can't buy it. They
1: tried that already once in Urban Legend. Rebecca Gayhart was the killer, and it was unsatisfying. So I'm, I'm glad they didn't do it here. I really think, other than Timothy Oliphant, the most likely suspect is returning cast member slash new cast member, because he didn't have any lines last time, Liev Shriver as Cotton Weary. You know, I, I said last time, when I think of Scream, I think of Liev Shriver, and I really think he does a phenomenal job here playing just that right amount of unbalanced where he's a very likely suspect, but he could just also be very honest and very kind of fucked up from having spent a year or so on death row. But
3: he's a character that's always had questionable morals. We don't think a lot about him in Scream, but he was messing around with a married mom. You know, I mean, that, that doesn't mean that you're a killer, but that means you're not necessarily trustworthy either. We're not here to like him. And although we're satisfied an innocent man went free, I wasn't necessarily rude rooting for his 90s fame as a talk show curiosity. I mean, he's pretty contemptible.
0: Don't put the blame on Cotton. Maybe he didn't know she was married. I mean, obviously, Sydney's mom is the one who got some problems going on if she's sleeping with men half her age. Hey, you just can't
3: resist the touch and feel of Cotton.
0: Oh, <laughs> Arnie! <Arty. laughs>
3: I don't know, you know, you think of Leo Schreiber. I didn't remember he was in these movies until I was watching them again. He isn't a character that really has stood out to me. He's always sort of been a device, a falsely named object, but not really a character. I guess, what would the motive be? Revenge from the year on death row, trying to get his name
1: back in the spotlight. You know, they give him a number of motives. He's very driven by a desire for that oh-so-90s, like, jenny jones type
3: level fame yeah i guess that works as much as anything i just i I don't know why but he never registered as a real possible suspect
0: yeah but everyone was getting that kind of talk show in during this time in the 90s i mean christ if you sneezed on somebody the person you sneezed on would get a talk show
1: it really it it seemed really bad in the 90s and again these movies they didn't age very well Because nowadays it seems like everybody wants their own reality TV show, but back then it was like all about the talk shows and being on them and going on Ricky Lake or Jenny Jones or Maury Povich or Montel or all of them if you were really good. Seemed to be a huge motivating factor back then. And that was something that in the 90s you'd see Cotton going for and go, yeah,
3: I get it. And he is sort of the OJ figure here. I mean, he was accused of murder, stood trial. It was a sensationalized thing. So if we have this
1: new kind of mishmash cast, the rules of the sequels per Randy. Number one, the body count is always bigger. And here we have 10 deaths instead of seven.
0: Ooh, that's a big increase. We
1: get the two at the beginning. Death number three, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Buffy herself, Cece, thrown out a window. Did that scare
3: either of you? No. Scare? It was where I started to realize that the movie was going to be a disappointment. Because (laughs) it was the third character in a row that I felt like had little or no connection to our main character and our main story. And it wasn't a very well-staged kill. I mean, it comes at the 25-minute mark, which in the last movie was when Nev Campbell was attacked in her house. That was a good scene. Here, Cece being attacked in the house and her being thrown out of a window, that's not even the M.O. of Ghostface. She ought to have been gutted and strung up. I mean, if they're trying to make a sequel that emulates the original, Mickey's got a lot to learn.
0: I don't think it created any suspense because you didn't know these characters. There's no tie to Woodsboro and you just don't care. It's just mindless killing where I am going to compare this to Jason or Freddie. At least with Jason or Freddie, you got something going on and there's an underlying story. This is, oh, they just happen to go to the same college as the Sydney Prescott girl.
1: It is disappointing that, you know... I'm sitting here wondering why these people are dying too, and I really kind of felt Cece was the principal hymbry of Scream 2. Like, we got a huge stretch where nothing's happening, let's kill somebody just for the sake of killing them. It's not even a character. We saw her in exactly one scene, and that was the film discussion scene, and guess what? That film scene was done in reshoot. She wasn't even in the scene when it was originally filmed. (laughs) So we were introduced to her in the scene of her death. How unsatisfying is that?
3: I mean, and Buffy is like on TV at this point, right? It is a big hit in 1997, right? Oh, yeah.
1: I was a big Buffy fan in 97. I'd watched it for quite a while at this point. And so she was a name. She was very well known. And in fact, I Know What You Did Last Summer had come out too, which was another Kevin Williamson movie that Sarah
3: Michelle Gellar starred in. Well, maybe that's why she doesn't play a bigger role here. She was off shooting that movie and didn't have time for doing more. But I got to say, if you're going to bring in Sarah Michelle Gellar, she needs to have a Drew Barrymore-sized part. To me, she would have been a bigger star and a bigger get at the beginning than Jada Pinkett Smith. She certainly would go on to become that,
1: but at this point, I just I felt like there needed to be more to her, and it just felt so rote. Like her alone in that big house, it just felt like Drew Barrymore all over again with a character who's we're not as scared for and she's just not pulling us in as much. One thing about Sarah Michelle Geller, almost all the roles I've ever seen her play, she's usually kind of tough, kind of bitchy. And so when you see her here alone in the house. You're not as scared for her as you are for poor defenseless cheerleader Drew.
3: The only thing that really transpires in this scene that I can tell that's important for the story is up to this point, we're wondering if the killer is one or two. And here we have it answered definitively. She's on the phone talking to someone that we know is going to be Ghostface and Ghostface slips into the house behind her. So we know at that moment for sure there is two killers. You know, I didn't even take it that way because I, I figured he could have
1: slipped in. He wasn't on the phone when he slipped in. He issue was like on hold. He wasn't speaking as he slipped in. So he could have rushed it with the cell phone. You're right, though. He didn't have a phone in his hand, So you paid closer attention than I did. You got a clue I didn't out of
0: that. I just assume that the ghost face killer is very spastic and clumsy and doesn't seem all that skilled as a killer. So... I, I really if something like that happens, I assume it's like a production goof or the way the <laughs> character's supposed to be.
3: But you know, this is a different killer this time. You you still think they're as doofus-y as Stu and Billy? Oh absolutely. He still gets beat up a lot.
0: Yeah. Did you see the way he's, like, all crazy with his arms and everything? He's got some problems.
3: Now, question. Are we ever meant to think that Gail is responsible for all of this? Because the only way that the killer could emulate, really, what's been done, the movie hasn't opened wide yet, no one could have seen the movie and been influenced it, is if they read her book, right? So all the details that she put down are what the killer's using as a blueprint to do the kill. That's why when Casey falls off the roof, the killer wipes the blade, right? Doesn't he do that? He does wipe the blade, but how does Gail know that he wipes the blade? Well, we assume that she did the research. She did the interviewing. You know, she was the who did she
1: interview? It. Who was alive
3: <laughs> to say yes? He wiped the blade after he gutted me. Dewey? Continuity problem. I, I don't know. But I guess I was taking that when that scene ends and Cece falls to her death and they wipe the blade. There's no reason to. It just it seemed at that point it was telling us that the killer had done his research, that they knew what had happened in Woodsboro, either because they were there or because they had read the book.
1: And you know what I took that as is this is one of Ghostface Killer's signature things. He cleans the blade, and they're not thinking who's under the mask because even though it is a whodunit, you know I used to own a Ghostface Killer action figure, and they never told me if it was Billy or Stu or Mickey or Mrs. Loomis under the mask. It was Ghostface Killer, and you know like Freddy or Jason. Ghostface killer has his moves and this was one of them. No,
3: but everyone that plays him needs to know what those moves are. I mean, but I don't think
1: the movie makers give them that. I don't think the movie makers are thinking he knew to clean the blade because he read the book. I think they just were saying he cleaned the blade last time. It was cool. Clean the blade.
0: Well, I would buy the he read the book thing if the book was more of a focus and people talked about the book. But
1: they talk about the movie a lot, which is based on the book. Yeah. Right. We
3: know the book was a hit because they've made a movie out of it that's just opening the weekend that all these killings happen.
0: I think you're thinking too hard again, guys. I don't think they put that much thought into this movie. I, I'm kind of
1: siding with Marjorie on this one. I don't think the cleaning of the blade was this deft move. I think it was actually a flub on the filmmaker's part That because there's no way anyone could have known that.
3: Mm. Maybe so.
1: So, Cece was killed because of the names, and as soon as they bring that up, they could stop following that pattern, which pisses me off because now those three dots are even more worthless.
3: I hated this. This made me angry. If you're going to set up rules, and this movie is big on rules, big, big on rules, if the rules are that everyone dies in the same order as the last movie and that they're dying because they have the same names, it's not because they're connected to Sydney. They just randomly have the same initials or names and all of that. You need to follow through on that. Yeah, it really,
1: really pissed me off that that was it. And then the next person to die is Randy. Nobody in the last
3: movie died named Randy, and Randy Mm -hmm. survived the last movie. I agree. The only thing I can think of is Mickey is the one making the sequel. Randy is killed by Mrs. Loomis. True, She's not following the same blueprint because she's not really into the killing. She's here for revenge. She's here to kill the people that she thinks killed her son. And Randy, by association, is one of those people. Although I will say at this point,
1: this movie – underwent some rewrites this movie may be the first one to have its ending rewritten and some reshooting done because of the internet because Scream One was such a big hit and a big who done it. Everyone was wondering, well, in the sequel, who done it? Did they bring back Billy and Stu? Who's the killer? The script leaked onto the internet. Some of the footage leaked onto the internet. And so they changed the ending. And I went and I found the original script because once something's on the internet, there's no uninterneting it. You can't unring that bell. And I read the whole original script. I will say in the original script. It followed this more closely. And it had different killers who we'll talk about later. But it did have the three names that were killed right there. And they were like, who's the fourth death? And they said, depending on how you look at it, it was either Tatum or Principal Himbury." And the reason it could have been either or is Gale wrote it differently in the book than how it happened. And so they're looking... To find any Hembree's or any Tatum's on campus. And then they realize the next death is Hallie, who is the new Tatum. She's the new friend of Sydney. So they try to stretch it out more in the original draft when they had to change a bunch of things around. They left in that the killers started with this pattern, but then they just drop it like a hot potato. And sadly, you said you got angry about this. I got angry that they killed Randy.
0: I liked Randy. Randy needed to live. He was the only character that I didn't want to kill.
3: No, Randy needed to die by his own rules. I mean, that's what happens in sequels, is characters you like that survive the last one don't make it into the next one. We know this from going from Nightmare 3 to Nightmare 4, that we got to go back and kill Kincaid and the Mute Kid and all of that. <laughs> they just, they don't make it. And so it's very fitting that Randy dies. I know that it might be hard because we do have some affection for Randy at this point. But uh, it, it's absolutely right. And I think it's why they have it built into the beginning of this movie when they're in the film class. Randy's the one that's against sequels. Mickey's the one that's pro sequels. Well, Mickey's the one doing the killing. Randy is the one trying to stay alive.
1: I know, but you like this character. And I gotta say, I don't like Gale. I don't like Nev. Dewey is sweet, but Randy was kind of the character I clicked with in the first movie. He was the one who I was looking forward to seeing in the second one. He was in all the trailers with the rules of a sequel. His death was hard on me and actually a lot of viewers because I think Wes got some death threats over it.
0: Oh, gosh. People just need to take a chill pill. Plus, Randy gets the best
1: line in the movie. What's your favorite scary movie? Showgirls? Come on, that's funny!
0: But very dated.
3: Yes, like so much of this movie. Yeah. I, do, I do feel like I'm walking into a time warp. I, I didn't know I could be nostalgic about 1997, but this does feel so retro. The baby doll dresses, the goth eye makeup, all of it. Yeah, the red so, lipstick. Ah, dated.
0: Yeah. But Randy kept the movie going because everyone else was just blindly in this movie, and it was a thing that they had going. It was like a horror movie inside of a horror movie. I kind of started to enjoy Randy. I kind of found him annoying in the first movie because he seemed like a stoner, but this he seems to kind of got his stuff together and he was more coherent, talking to Dewey and everything. That was my favorite scene in this entire
1: movie. In in a slasher film, my favorite scene is when they're having ice cream, talking about the rules of a sequel, and the two play off each other. Maybe they had a good rapport as actors because they'd been in the first one but their interplay there was just it was my favorite scene of the movie
0: okay it wasn't just ice cream Arnie it was Baskin Robbins and that was one of many product placements in this movie
1: (laughs) yes it was well, you know, the other rule of the sequel is if the first one was successful, sell out.
0: It reminded me of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes Part 2, where George Clooney was like hawking like everything to pay for the movie. That's what it felt like.
3: What are the rules of a sequel? Can you run them down
1: quickly? Well, there's the body count is always bigger, which we're kind of going through as we talk about the deaths. Yeah. The second is the death scenes are always much more elaborate with more blood and gore. I don't know that that's true in this case.
3: I no. don't think it felt as gory. Not at all. The way that... Rose McGowan and Drew Barrymore get it. Nothing in this movie comes close to that.
0: I thought this was a very tame as far as blood and gore horror movies go. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't for language that it would have been a PG-13.
1: I agree completely. It's all really kind of... There was
0: no sex, no boobies. You know, boobies are standard in horror movies if it's a slasher flick, which this is. There was no boobies in the last one. I know. I'm saying there's no boobies, period. But and- at least there were
1: nipples in the last one. They were through a sweater, but they were quite clear. <laughs> okay, Here, but- we don't even get that.
0: I-, I guess I'm the randy. I'm taking over Arnie's spot. Because, I mean, if you're going to have a good slasher flick, you got to have a naked girl somewhere. Because that's think- what makes the killer go after you. It's because you're loose morals.
1: And then the third rule, which wasn't said in the movie, but it is in the trailer, is
3: never under any circumstance assume that the killer is dead. Okay. That was also true in the original, though, right? Yeah. Were we ever meant to think that Stu and Billy could have survived and continued on, or or God forbid that they're actually ghosts or zombies? You know,
1: I will say this. In Scream 3, they had planned to bring Stu back. They had him contracted, and they were going to make it so he did survive the first one, and he was going to be a surprise killer in the third one. And in fact... In the background of the party scene, when they're talking about harmonica blowjobs and everything, Matthew Lillard was in the crowd. Now, I don't think it was planned because of setting him up for part three. He happened to be dating Nev Campbell at the time. I don't know which one was slumming it there. But he (laughs) was there, and that could have been seen as, see, Stu was still alive and in the background the whole time watching the events of Scream 2 for when he returned in Scream 3 yeah I don't like it. It's not what happened. We'll talk about what happened, but yeah, I suppose there's always the possibility that the killer from part one came back.
3: Never considered it. I gotta honestly say, I'd never really thought that that was the case here. I don't know that I was that invested with the mystery enough. To even play the whodunit game that I enjoyed playing the last time. The last time, I really was into, like, who could it be? This time, I'm like, ah, they'll eventually tell me. It's <laughs> not that important. It's one of these TV starlets. It's
0: because they didn't build up any suspicion, really, on anyone, where you're just like, all right, I'm watching the movie. Someone's going to come out as a killer eventually. And then when they do, you're like, oh, really? That's who you picked? I think part of the problem is the cast is bigger and blander. Yeah. You don't think
1: it's the cameraman. You just don't. He, no. They try to play it up because he's wearing the killer shoes. Yeah, and he's he goes off to get some Dunkin' Donuts yes. when
0: Randy's to, killed. Washed down with his Pepsi.
1: But you don't think it's the cameraman. You don't think it's the sorority chicks. You don't think it's Mickey or Jerry O'Connell because all these people are so minor. The people they set up though are Mickey because he's a little crazy eyed and Cotton, and those are the ones you're supposed to be thinking, and you're supposed to be pretty confident it is them.
0: I never Thought it would be cotton.
3: He's after the movie rights and the talk show. He just wants to be on TV, man. I don't know. Randy also cited Haley and he said it because she's quote Candyman's daughter. Was, <laughs> was, was that a racist comment? Like yes. uh, after all this postmodernism about black actors in horror movies, to reduce her to Candyman's daughter because she's black. Uh <laughs> well, Randy, maybe that's why you're dead. <laughs>
1: You know what I did like, though? You say these kills weren't very good, Stuart. I liked Randy's death. I liked that it was in daylight. I liked that it was in a wide open space. You know, you faulted Wes's directing earlier. I think this scene is truly masterfully done, that you can take a wide open space in broad daylight and make it suspenseful and make you wonder which corner the killer's around. This scene was so counterintuitive and yet worked so much better for me than Cece's death. And the first time I saw it, I didn't know who was going to die. I didn't know where the killer was. And when Randy got it, first of all, I was shocked because I really thought Randy had the bubble of protection over him. And second of all, I just didn't see it coming so I really even rewatching, knowing Randy's going to get it that scene is taught that scene is exciting and action-packed
3: I totally disagree and I again will cite Craven I felt this thing felt slack I agree with you it's really interesting to think of the killer striking in broad daylight in the middle of a very wide quad that's great if you can pull it off but I don't think they pulled it off I don't think that the camera selections the camera choices none of that pulled me into this scene as being riveting it just it didn't work when we're in the house with drew barrymore in the original and there's all the windows and all the doorways and all the ways the killers could get at it i could feel that wide openness be a threat here i didn't see any opportunity where the killer could really get him i mean except that van i just i don't know it just was not set up in a way that i felt paid out
0: and if he was such a horror movie expert i had a huge problem with a, a lot in this movie where they broke the cardinal rules one they split up And two, he had his back to that van, backing up to it. So they broke all the rules because everyone knows if you're in a horror movie and there's some crazy killer, the worst thing you do is split up. You're going to kill off one by one.
3: But at least we now know it is not Dewey and it's not Gale. We can eliminate them from the list of suspects. Which they were never on. Yes. They were kind of on. I mean, Dewey kind of was on. We already said that... None of them were. I didn't say that they were good or plausible. They were on the <laughs> list. Uh, let me be clear. None of them are good suspects because none of them have an obvious motive or seems particularly integrated in Sid's life in college. I still disagree with you,
1: Stuart. I think that this scene worked. The scene that doesn't work for me in this whole movie and is perhaps my least favorite scene when watching it. And when I went back and read the original screenplay, I was shocked as shit that this was in it. I feel so tacked on. This whole movie with the exception of the opening in the theater, takes place at the college, right? You're in the campus security, you're on the quad, you're in the classrooms, it's all in the college. Except for this one scene where these two pseudo-homosexual cops who make don't ask, don't tell jokes are taking Sydney and, for some reason, Hallie into protective custody. And then there's, like, a car chase and super ghost face killing two cops and crashing the car, and they have to slink past his body. Man, this unnecessarily elongated a movie that I was already starting to grow weary of.
3: Not cotton-weary-of,
1: just weary-of. <laughs>
3: yeah, I mean, they're, again, we're introduced to characters. We have maybe a couple minutes with them before they're killed. Obviously, that's not going to affect us very much. I mean, obviously, we don't really care that they die. And, and they're authority figures. They're adults uh, on top of that, which never count in a horror movie. We only care about peers. They're just body count at this point. They're just here to fulfill Randy's contractual requirement that sequels have a bigger body count. Without them, what? They would have been tied, right?
0: Yes. Well, they
1: would have had one extra.
0: No, because you're counting Haley. She might not have been killed then.
3: Well, true.
1: But they had to kill Haley.
0: Yeah. I guess the question I have with this whole scene is Sydney had the perfect opportunity to kill Ghostface Killer. He had some sort of head injury, I assume. A concussion if he
3: was passed out.
0: Yeah. At this point, couldn't she just bash his head in with something? For Christ's sake, she shot
3: people already in the last movie. I totally get this. I think this works, but here's my ding with it. Williamson would use it exactly the same way in Halloween H2O. Jamie Lee Curtis is running away from the college. She has an opportunity to go out, and then she decides, no, I want to stand back, and I want to pull back the mask, and she goes back and has the big throwdown. It feels exactly the same, and it's much better in H2O than it is here, but I get the fact that she initially wants to get away, but before she gets too far down the road, she realizes, no, my curiosity is getting the better of me. I'd rather know and be put back in danger than to not know and get to say. Safety. Of course, H2O came after this, so H2O's ripping off this, not vice
1: versa, even though they're both Williamson. I don't know that one was written before the other. The thing we do know is Scream 2
3: was rushed, rushed, rushed. And it felt it. Yeah. Even though the craftsmen are the same, the craftsmanship is not the same. I mean, they had less than a year between Screams release and Screams 2 release, right? I mean, that's not a whole lot of time to get it together. And then if things are leaking on the internet and they're changing the script that they did have, yeah. I mean, we're lucky, I guess, that we got something as coherent as we did. But it sure doesn't impact us the same way. And I agree with you. These next three deaths just – continue the feeling that we're watching people we don't care about get it in very unimaginative ways
1: and while this car chase is going on gail and dewey are investigating and being chased through the film department so who's who mickey's the one in the car mickey is the one in the car because he shows up later with a head injury from the accident okay so it's mrs loomis chasing around gail which makes sense because she'd been kind of stalking gail the whole movie as debbie salt
3: right and like i said i mean her motive is revenge she's not here to do some arbitrary i'm making a sequel i want to follow exactly like the last movie she only wants to get the people that she perceives as doing her son wrong and that's everyone back that was there originally in woodsboro
1: so it does make sense she'd kill randy and she'd stay focused on gail and dewey yep I kind of liked the soundproof room scene. I I liked how that played out with that. And again, you like Dewey, this film, you feel bad for him when he's spitting up blood on the glass. And you you think this time he really is dead. At the end, fooled you, he lived yet again.
3: Yeah, I didn't see that coming at all, him, him pulling through yet again. But I guess that's because we don't know the formula. Yeah, we think if Randy died, this guy's probably dead too. They're killing off everyone that was in the last one. At least this is my theory. There will be no survivors from Woodsboro except Sydney when curtains close.
1: Did you catch the drop line at the end that it was the scar tissue from his first stabbing that made it so yeah. he survived the second stabbing? <laughs> no, no, but it, it's funny and it's in true Dewey style. And then we get to the climax on the stage of Cassandra, which I got to say, we are introduced to this whole Cassandra play an hour into this two-hour film. We have that little like fake-out dance scene where Ghostface is mixed up among the Greek faces. Yes. I think that if you're going to have your climax on this stage, it should have been set up earlier than just a dialogue scene when she wants to drop out of the play.
3: By casting Sydney as Cassandra, it's a way of talking about her being in a sequel. She knows what's going to happen. It's not a prophecy, but it's a reliving of the vision of the last movie. As such, she's powerless to change it. She can only know what's coming. She knows that it's eventually going to be her and two killers again. She just, there's nothing she can do. It kind of works. I get that. But
1: having the whole climax on the stage of Cassandra just didn't work for me because it wasn't set up that well.
3: I don't mind that it's here. I think that it's important to have done it if you're going to make the metaphor follow through on it. But honestly, I'm a little disappointed we never get back to the Stab movie. I mean, yes, we do have one more scene where we do see, ha ha ha, Tori Spelling is playing her in the movie, which was the joke from last time. Luke Wilson (laughs) is playing Billy. I
1: loved Luke Wilson in
3: this. But I would have liked to have gone back to the movie for the climax. I would have liked to have seen the movie's version of the climax playing against the new version, the sequel's version, uh, as masterminded by Mickey and Mrs. Loomis. I think that they didn't follow through here. Like so many of the ideas here, they're half-baked. They kind of start something, and then it changes, whether it's a victim of rewriting or just not having enough time to thoroughly craft a good story. Williamson is not following through on his ideas. And it's as such, I just feel like he only halfway gets there. I think you're exactly right. Because, you know, my problem is
1: when we get back to the stage, the first time I saw this movie, I didn't really get where the stage was. And I still don't understand why they chose that stage to tie up Jerry O'Connell. And it's just Why
3: he was crucified?
1: Well, he was crucified because he gave her letters.
3: And that was a nice surprise. I mean, we think that Ghostface is coming at him because the girl's leaving the car and he's left standing and someone in a cloak is running at him. That's got to be Ghostface, right? Well, no, it's his frat brothers. And that was a good get. I mean, I didn't jump, but <laughs> I, d- I definitely didn't anticipate that coming. It was a nice payout.
1: But I would have liked it better if we'd ended at the theater where we started and it would have helped tie those early murders into the whole thing. If Sydney is leaving campus anyway, which felt wrong to me, then at least they should do the Gremlins thing and have the showdown in the theater.
3: That's what I'm saying, is that it feels like this was about a movie reflecting on its predecessor, and as such, the sequel that's staged by Mickey and Loomis should be playing out against Stab. It's just, that's what they started, that's how they needed to end it. And it would have made that car thing
1: feel at least like it was progressing the story instead of she left campus just so she can go back to campus
0: yeah that made no sense i didn't know why she ran back to campus and then ran to the theater
3: i don't know why the buildings are locked and there aren't <laughs> night security men i mean it it's all of a sudden a populated college feels completely barren and there's only five people running around and cotton weary <laughs> and in fact It it makes even less sense because the last time we got to see Jerry
1: O'Connell, there were like 80 people pouring beer down his shorts. And now he's just all
3: alone. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, it's a prank. They want to hurt him. They think he'll be found Monday. I guess it's, what, Saturday night? I think that's an extreme prank. He's going to have two days of shitting himself
0: before he's found. Exposure, you know, bug bites.
3: Clearly, you've never seen any hazing done at fraternities. There could be much worse than tied up to a sun prop. <laughs> I didn't see any goldfish going on his throat. But then Mickey
1: comes, reveals himself, and changes his MO and shoots Derek. That was kind of
3: disappointing.
0: This is where it really fell apart, though. I was just like, what? This doesn't make any sense. I'd forgotten all about this guy.
3: Well, you know, they've been teasing out that Sydney is distrustful of her boyfriend because she thinks he might be in on it. And indeed, we think that if this is a sequel and a redo of the last time, that it is the boyfriend again and his best friend, who would be Mickey. Again, it's not necessarily a surprise that it's Mickey, but we're not sure about Jerry O'Connell.
0: Oh, yeah. That's where I thought it was this first movie all over again.
3: Well... Like I said, I read the original script. In the original
1: script, it was the boyfriend again, but it wasn't Mickey. Instead, Derek had teamed up with Hallie, who he was having an illicit affair with. They even compared themselves to Mickey and Mallory, although Derek didn't like that comparison because he wasn't a Stone fan. They were both film students, and they were doing all of this, again, at the behest of Miss Loomis for the sake of getting caught, having the OJ trial, and Derek was even
3: dreaming about having a dead man walking type death
1: row experience
3: Mm, yeah not that clever no i i don't think that would have been satisfying i guess i'm more or less fine that it's mickey i mean it just there's no wow to it maybe because i'm not even invested it (laughs) it it doesn't feel like a good surprise it doesn't feel like a surprise
1: at all i would have loved for jerry o'connell to do it because i don't know that i've ever seen jerry o'connell play evil I don't know if he could pull off evil, but it sure as hell would have been out of left field. Yes, definitely. But I'm so glad they went with what they did because at this ending, Stuart, was I the only one who thought Timothy Oliphant was channeling a little 1980s Stephen Jeffries at this point?
3: Yes, you were.
1: He was like evil Ed, Billy's mother. It wasn't quite
3: Evil Ed, but maybe a little. It was Evil
1: Ed. We'll see in August.
3: Okay. <laughs> Who the hell is Evil
1: Ed? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see in August. Great. I really think that I he was intentionally doing a Stephen Jeffries. It just was so spot on. And I, I loved it. It was so weird, though. It's just, he started all these new weird mannerisms and tics and weird inflections that we hadn't seen the whole movie.
3: You got Stephen Jeffries, I got Jack Nicholson, but same thing. He's acting like your stereotypical killer, revealing his plot at the end of a movie. It's working for him. But of course, he has a partner. And, Stuart, last time you said the killer
1: couldn't be Principal Hembry because it had to be one of the kids. So how did you feel that it was Debbie Salt, the strange reporter lady by Laurie Metcalf?
3: Well, I was glad they finally referenced another movie other than Scream. They're going back to Friday the 13th. This is the inverse of Friday the 13th where the original killer was the mother and every sequel was the kid. Here we see it the opposite way. The only thing I got to say is wasn't she a character that abandoned her son? Yes. And they bring it up. They say it, but they don't (laughs) explain it. I mean, why would she be driven to murder if the child she had abandoned, who was a killer, was killed in the process of killing people? I just, I don't need horror movies to have great logic. I need them to have their own logic. And this explanation feels muddled.
0: You got to have something you can run with and believe in. It's perfectly plausible that Jason's mom was killing the kids who were having sex while her son drowned. Right. In a crazy kind of way. In a crazy kind of way.
3: You could buy that. Right. In a movie way. We are in a horror movie and these are people living inside their own horror movie of their own making. I'll buy it. But yeah, it's just, I don't know. I I like it conceptually, but I feel like I needed a line or two in there to really explain why.
0: The whole backstory of Sydney's mom and the affairs is not well thought out and it just keeps getting... More muddy and muddy as they make these movies, and it's just, wow. I, I can't believe that this is a backstory as to why there's a killer. You'd think they come up with a better reason that the girl's mom was a whore.
3: I don't put Sydney's mother in any way responsible for this. I mean, is she-
0: The whole backstory, that's why Billy was the killer, and now Mrs. Loomis, and it's just, it keeps just... Parts of it just keep coming off and it's like, stop.
3: Now Mrs. Loomis, but she's mad because Billy's dead. She's not mad because Maureen Prescott slept with her husband.
0: Sydney killed her boy because her boy killed her mom. So it just keeps getting worse and worse.
3: Good storytelling does build upon each other, but here I don't feel like it's expanding the original's mystery. I don't feel like it's well integrated with the ghost face of the last time. There's only tangential connections between the motives of the killers last time and the motives of the killers this time. And I like the motives of the killers last time a lot better than this one. Here, they're doing a semi-funny Friday the 13th riff, and it got a half-smile out of me, but maybe that's... That's my reaction to the whole movie. It's it's only halfway there. It's not a full smile. So Timothy Oliphant goes down, oh Mickey, you died so
1: fine. I didn't really care for the final fight between Sydney and Mrs. Loomis, where Sydney decides to go backstage and turn on all the special effects. The
0: thunder in a small college theater is very menacing. And the cellophane
1: fire. Yeah. Although I, I will say, sandbags are falling like it's the set of Spider-Man. Turn off the dark.
3: <laughs> I didn't like it in the last movie either. Again, this movie series always fails when it tries to make Sydney be some avenging force. When it's finally time for her to give the killer a taste of their own medicine, it always feels just a step too melodramatic for me. I mean, it's as good as her jumping out of the closet with the umbrella, <laughs> prank calling the killers. It just which isn't very good. No, it's not. <laughs>
1: I just kind of felt like maybe this movie needed to be a half an hour shorter. If they were rushing the production, they should have shortened the runtime. But then she is saved at the last minute.
0: Cotton saved the day leaping from the orchestra pit onto the stage, but he landed like a cat, which was kind of amusing because he goes on to play Sabretooth in the Wolverine movie. It was just very animalistic the way he jumped onto the stage, right? You didn't see it?
1: I didn't see him go, he like did. he was fierce. He did. He's very
0: fierce.
3: But he jumped up there like a cat.
1: He did kind of land on all fours. Because we've
3: seen the Wolverine movie a number of times, it... I saw it. I, I didn't notice. I, I got to say, I, I didn't pay much attention to Leaf Schreiber here. I was wondering where Gail was. Honestly, I even missed the fact that she had been shot. I was like, <laughs> wasn't she in the scene? I'm looking through props that have fallen. And I'm like, is she here somewhere? I feel like Gail drew the short straw in this movie. I feel like of all the parts that got cut down, she really had almost no reason to be here and is only here to remind people that she wrote the book of the last one. And Her character does absolutely nothing. More to the point, she falls into that orchestra pit full of dry ice. If the
1: bullet didn't kill her, asphyxiation would have. (laughs) Yes. And then we get a showdown of an odd type. Cotton has a gun at both Sydney
3: and Mrs. Loomis. And it looks like he may choose to shoot Sydney. I like this because I feel like it's true to this character. Again, I say, I've always found this character to be somewhat suspect. I mean – he isn't an innocent in anything more than he wasn't guilty of the crime of murder. But I've never felt like he was trustworthy or good. And you're right. He could have been the killer. So to see him on the border here, to have it be only because Sidney agrees to do the Diane Sawyer interview that he goes to the good side. I think that's an interesting choice. I i like that. I like the moral ambiguity of it.
0: I knew he went to shoot Sydney. You knew Really? You knew deep down he wasn't
3: going to.
1: You know what? In right. that original script He did. He tries to kill Sydney.
0: Really? I just didn't see him as such an evil character. He just wasn't menacing. This is a
1: problem with the original script though, is in the original script it's Derek and Hallie working for Mrs. Loomis, and then after all three of them are dead, Cotton decides to kill Sydney because he can and have a good alibi and then he'll get all the fame. Huh. And then the two of them have a big fight.
3: Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm going to kind of weigh in and say that that might have worked. It's all in the execution. I think it's funny. Let me put it that way. I think it's clever that we think he could be sweeping in and being the hero and be celebrated as a hero. But in fact, his impulse to be famous pushes him to the dark side. I think we needed a little more of that. Here, they pull back. I'm not sure why he's in the building in the first place. I mean... He's hanging around the campus in a creepy kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but. I don't know why he would be in this building at this time when he knows that she has been whisked away by security guards to another town. The whole thing's very convenient. Convenient. Yes, it is convenient. But I do like the fact that in this version, he chooses to shoot Debbie because basically she lied to him. She's been playing a fake journalist and he's mad at her because she promised him celebrity that she can't deliver. And so that's why you die. I mean, they still, <laughs> they still have an element of that character and his fame-hungriness being what drives his impulse, not his moral standing. And I like that. So Marjorie
1: Stewart, do you recommend Scream 2?
0: I do not. It wasn't good. If you've seen the first one, you've seen the second one. I just didn't think it was good. It wasn't original. It was uninteresting, which is you need that for a horror movie and you really didn't
3: care about who the killer was. So I I can't recommend this. Stewart. I mean, I don't know what to say. I honestly don't. They, they, they got halfway there. They more or less followed the blueprint of the last movie and they delivered a perfectly acceptable watchable film that almost works. And I'm just I'm on the fence here. I think I am going to give it the mildest of recommends because it didn't offend me. But <laughs> but it doesn't make Mickey's case that sequels can be better than the original. This is not Terminator 2. This is not Aliens. This is very much a derivative wanting to be clever imitator of its forebearer. And so because I like the original so much, I'm gonna say Go ahead if you like the original and watch this one. And who knows? The rules are different for trilogies. Maybe this will all pay out in the third chapter. You know, I think though, when they were having
1: their Mickey Randy argument about sequels, Williams had only named the ones he wanted to name because, I mean, Wrath of Khan blows everything out of the water,
3: right? <laughs> People made the case for Godfather Two. I mean, it happens. You know, there are sequels that are better than the original, but we can all agree this is not one of them. No, no, it
0: is not.
1: I'm gonna give this movie also a the weakest of possible recommendations. There's stuff in here to like. I liked the scene Stewart didn't about the attack on the quad. I like seeing Dewey back and seeing Randy back, and it's kind of like you have such affection for the characters who survived the first one. It's Fun to have this kind of reunion. I like some of the banter about the rules of sequels, but I really do wish that they'd cut a half an hour out of this movie and just made it go a little faster. If they'd skipped Cece's death, if they'd skipped the stupid car crash, and if they'd had the opening death make more sense. Stuart, you said Gail didn't have much to do. Maybe make the opening death Gale for exploiting everything. I realize. I mean, Courtney Cox, by this point, because of friends was a big enough name that that would have been a shocking death and brought us right in and told us all the bets were off. I liked it. Sure. Yeah. There's so many things they could have done to make this better. Could it have surpassed the original? One of the things about horror movies that makes them scary is they're new, all of the talk of sequels. I would like a listener to come to our forums and tell us where a part two of a horror series is better than the part one of the horror series. Because all the examples were sci-fi and drama. Horror, number one, is what rules because it's what you don't expect and you are scared of what's going to happen in the next frame. And because of that, the biggest victim of Scream 2 is itself falling under the blade of its
3: own premise that sequels kind of suck. Yep, they can't change that. But Nightmare 3 is better than Nightmare 1. But not part two. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe there's hope for Scream 3 then. Uh, you know, I, I'm right there with you, Arnie. It's not that I like this movie. It just wasn't bad enough to not recommend if you enjoyed the first one. Exactly. And if you didn't like Marjorie, yeah. then you're going to find even less here. <laughs> yes. Uh, you're not going to rediscover it.
1: But we will find out what the rules of trilogies are when we reconvene next week for Scream 3. Scream 4 is opening at theaters next week. We will have to review out the following week and we hope you're enjoying our scream retrospective series and if you are head to our archives at nowplayingpodcast.com where you can find out all of the rules of horror movies as we go in great detail discussing halloween friday the 13th a nightmare on elm street texas chainsaw massacre i think we've done them all at this point right Except saw for- uh, oh. There's still leprechaun <laughs> And we've even done some more horror. If you donate to our show using the donate button at the bottom right corner of the homepage, you got to scroll all the way down and look at the right. There's a little orange button says PayPal donate. If you donate $10 to us between now and Memorial Day, Stuart Brock and I watched and reviewed all four Jaws films. And then because we wanted to give you just that little extra, we also hung out with LL and Samuel L., with Deep Blue Sea.
3: <laughs> yeah, we did. It's kind of a sequel. It, you know, let me put it this way. Deep Blue Sea wouldn't exist if there weren't a Jaws. So by proxy, it, it fits. It was that or Shark Tale. <laughs> we chose Risley
1: And if you support us even more and go above and beyond, and we're not going to give you what the amount is... We want you to donate what you think you're comfortable with, what you think, you know, you can do to help us out. But if it's a certain amount, you also get Marjorie Stewart and I bathing in the light of
3: poltergeist. We're back. And I love this one. I want you guys to hear it. So if you can, if you can reach into your wallet, if you're able to give, I do think you're really going to enjoy it. There's a there's a lot of fun to returning to these movies. I loved going back and seeing all three. Let's face it. At this point, you filed your taxes. You probably
1: got a nice big return. Yeah, exactly. We're not
3: asking for all of it. <laughs> no. It, well, it's it, yeah. I think we've asked for the right sum for what we're giving you guys, and I hope that you guys are willing and able to do so. And
1: so, no matter what, now playing will always be free. These are just extra bonus thank yous to those who help support our show and we'll be back next week and every week for the foreseeable future continuing jaws and then after jaws we'll be seeing leah again stewart in the x-men series oh yes
3: back to marvel my summer in spandex (laughs) (laughs) and we're watching some superhero movies too oh (laughs) so we'll be back next week
2: That'll be a wrap. The sequel discussion to be continued. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Scream Retrospective Series. Watch a few movies take a few notes. <laughs> it was fun. You can listen to other episodes of this series at our website, NowPlayingPodcast.com. You like scary movies. Uh huh. If you like scary movies, then head to NowPlayingPodcast.com where you can find our retrospective reviews of other horror series, including A Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Saw, and many others. More blood, more gore, carnage, candy. Your core audience just expects it. As well as individual movie reviews of The Human Centipede and others. Stop it, Billy. What's you all right? I can't take anymore. And you're going to need a bigger iPod, because those of you who donate $10 or more to Now Playing will get, as our thank you, the entire Jaws retrospective series. Spice twist, huh? Didn't see it coming, did ya? And if the donation is high enough, you'll also get our Poltergeist retrospective series. It's all a movie. It's all one great big movie. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So, where are you? I'm going to take the party out. These special thank you podcasts are only available to those who donate $10 or more by May 30th, 2011. So, donate now. Don't you
3: blame the movies! Movies don't create psychos, movies make psychos more creative.
2: And while at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss these films with other listeners. See, we're about love, respect and responsibility. Oh, Monica style is okay, right? Hey, uh-huh. Oh yeah. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com.
0: So i covered everything are there any questions any comments you know what though who gives a flying fuck anyway
2: now playing scream retrospective series is edited by arnie and jay not much of a story here just a bunch of kids cutting it loose the now playing scream opening credits are performed by jen and arnie no please don't kill me mr ghostface i want to be in the sequel now Playing is not affiliated with Dimension Films. The Scream Films and all the Scream Universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Dimension Films and no infringement is intended. My lawyer liked that. Not as much as I did. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media Production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. Now you gotta die. Those are the rules. This is Gale Weathers signing off. Now, if you'll excuse me, I
3: have some oozing to do.
1: Courtney Cox, Sarah Michelle Geller, Jamie Kennedy, Jerry O'Connell Stamos. <laughs>
0: to
1: Sydney, he sings, I think I love you in the cafeteria. It, he was as off-key as I was just right there.
0: I doubt it, that. <laughs>
1: and now if you're talking i can't hear you
0: i don't hear any sound at all no i still
1: can't hear you so what's wrong with your microphone can you hear me now yes
0: maybe in the movie v ripped it off by giving everybody the v mask so he could escape
1: V from Vendetta, you mean? Not V like the aliens. Sorry, (laughs) you want to say that
3: again? (laughs) Try it. Try it again, because I definitely got confused. (laughs) Well, you know, now you're getting into scary movie two, which (laughs) parodied the thing with another phallic object or with another sharp object—a
1: giant dildo. Hopefully, those aren't usually too sharp, though. That seems painful.
3: (laughs) Seems like seems like a mistake in the marketing.
1: Jerry O'Connell, the fat kid from Stand By Me <laughs> all grown up. I mean, he is just like the most vanilla, bland. I know him more from my secret identity, that 80s TV show, than anything else. Although he would go on. Nope, wrong movie. <laughs> Sorry, I got him confused with Scott Foley. That's how vanilla he
3: is. <laughs> okay. I uh, uh-
0: got some problems going on if she's sleeping with men half her age hey
1: you just can't resist the touch and feel of cotton
0: oh arnie
3: (laughs) are you proud of that are you really proud he's
0: probably been stewing (laughs) on that for days
3: no it just came to me
1: using cotton and i started thinking i don't know if you guys remember that 80s the touch the feel of
3: cotton they still
1: have it now zoe of
0: our lives
3: Yes, Aaron <laughs> Neville, the most burly man to ever hit falsetto.
1: <laughs> I'm not proud of it. I'm yes, not. you are. I am not. <laughs> uh, you know, what my beef is I, I want to the you, pl- can, Will I am? Can you re say that?
3: <laughs> you know, while you were sleeping and her being pushed in front of a train. I mean, I don't know. That would have been better than
0: watching while you were sleeping. <laughs> Admittedly. I like while you were sleeping. That's because you're the girl in this relationship, Arnie. <laughs> Ooh, I'm learning so much. <laughs> he likes chick flicks. I don't.
1: Well, let's face it. I mean, Phil and Maureen,
3: or what was Phil's last name? I don't know. Do you think I paid attention to this? do <laughs> 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 um, Steven, well, Stevens, because the guy was named. Okay, Steve. yeah. <laughs>